Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Your Future. Today, we're going to be talking about research findings on attitudes about leadership. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help leaders identify disruptive trends and envision opportunities that these trends create. This involves elevating leadership quality and transforming organizations to build sustainable success and impact. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organizations. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association, and this interview is part of the International Leadership Association conference series where we interviewed several ILA members at the conference in Ottawa, Canada this year. So with me today is... uh, are two leadership experts, Lynn Sholin and Sam Wilson. Dr. S. Lynn Sholin is the Associate Professor of Leadership Studies and the Department Chair in the Department of Leadership and American Studies at Christopher Newport University, a public liberal arts institution in Newport News, Virginia, and in the United States. And Dr. Sam Wilson is a senior lecturer in leadership in the Department of Management and Marketing at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, Australia. So again, I'm delighted to have both of you with us and be represented by people from uh, a more more global research base. So we're excited to showcase two current leadership researchers and their findings – one from the United States and the other from Australia, will discuss the development of key results of the first annual Attitudes About Leadership in the United States survey conducted by Lynn Sholin of Christopher Newport University. This survey examines the public's attitude about leaders and leadership, perceptions of influence on on leadership at various levels and in different sectors and factors influencing willingness to follow, among other topics. Also featured will be the Australian Leadership Index with co-creator Sam Wilson. This research measures perceptions and expectations of leadership for the greater good in 12 institutions across the government, public and private, and nonprofit sectors in Australia. And I'm delighted to feature both of you and discuss your work. Lynn, do you want to tell us anything more about your background before we jump into the findings? Hi, Maureen. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, I would like to acknowledge my my co-authors on the survey, Elizabeth Gannon and, and Kathleen Callahan. Um, my background, I've been in the field of leadership studies for 12 years, and I do research on aspects of identity and leadership perceptions. And this project has just stemmed out of my own interest and plus what we are looking at at the Department of Leadership and American Studies at Christopher Newport University. Thank you. And Sam, do you want to give us any more about your background and and how you came to be doing this research? 
Yes, certainly, Maureen. Thanks again for the invitation as well. I'm really happy to be here. So I too would like to acknowledge my colleagues, uh, Jason Pellant and Tim Bednell, with whom I created this uh, this work. Um, and unlikely, and I'm actually, I feel like a bit of an outsider to leadership studies. I get the sense sometimes that many of us are. I'm a social psychologist by trade, and a lot of my earlier work was in the area of dehumanization and uh, understanding the future self. But um, it's really hard to be a scholar and an academic and to ignore the, the, the travails of the world around us. And so I found myself drawn into understanding why don't we act on what we know. And of course, leadership studies is the obvious place to ask these questions. Beautiful. Thank you. So let's, we're going to jump in three segments. We're going to talk a little bit about the project backgrounds, findings and plans, and then connecting to your research with, I think, our, our listeners will be most interested in the findings, but that is certainly grounded in uh, the purpose and the focus of each of your projects. So let's start, Lynn, with what is the purpose and focus of your research? Mm-hmm. Sure. The purpose is to gather information about attitudes of people in the United States toward leadership within the United States. Um, so leadership, broadly speaking, we really wanted to make sure that our survey was designed to be as apolitical and as ideologically unbiased as possible. And so we asked participants within the U.S. to really focus on not necessarily one particular leader or one particular area of leadership or one particular leadership event, because we knew it would be easy to just focus on, for instance, the presidency or the financial sector. And so we're really trying to get this broad scope of of leadership. So we asked them to keep a couple things in mind. First of all, that leadership can be done by people who have a formal title, but also by people who do not have a formal title. So leadership happens everywhere, not in just the most obvious places. And that was really the, the entails the purpose and the focus of our project. Thank you. And Sam, same question. What's the purpose and focus of your project, of your research? Yeah, thanks, Maureen. So um, there are so many connections between my work and Lynn's work, but uh, one thing I would say in the first instance is that we try to take more of a macro view, if you like, about, about leadership. So we look at uh, institutions themselves, which I understand Lynn and her colleagues also look at. But just by way of some general background, which might help sort of situate this work, um, and this, of course, is, I think, germane to the U.S. and other places too, for many years now, our community has watched in sort of transfixed horror at times at the countless transgressions and, you know, apparently self-serving conduct of politicians and church leaders and so on and so forth. And over the years, we've had many what we call royal commissions, which investigate this these transgressions. And it's sort of become clear that um, that there is this persistent sense that uh, authorities in the government sector, public, private and not-for-profit sectors, um, tend or may appear to tend to serve their own interests rather than the broader public interest. And the question this raised for us is, well, who, who actually speaks for the public interest? Who is responsible for leading and, and serving the public interest? And so with this in mind, we designed this project to try and measure, and it's quite slippery, to try and measure the public interest uh, or leadership for the public interest and get a sense of what drives it and how different sectors differ. Uh, but also what we can do in the future to improve the practice of leadership for the greater good, as we call it. 
Both of them sound fascinating. And the idea of, of especially leadership for the greater good, as as we have recently witnessed all of the fires in Australia, and I'm wondering, and this is just a quick answer. I, I realize we could probably spend over an hour just about on this subject. How is um, are people perceiving leadership differently after this crisis or in the midst of it? Yeah, and I can't help but think about some of the work of Keith Grint uh, in my in my response to this question. So uh, there's a, a sense that it's too little too late among many people. So we know, for example, that there have been years of, of uh, discussion and warnings from experts about the effect of this changing climate on um, on the environment and how it affects the various factors that affect bushfire propensity and expert briefings and so forth, which all seem to have been largely ignored uh, in, in favor of apparently preserving the status quo. And so in the aftermath of these, of these crises, the government seems to have moved to a rather sort of a crisis command and control sort of mode, thinking about drawing in the army and so forth. And for many people, this is seen as just not good leadership. Um, the time to act was when there was... Uh, was to respond when the, when the warnings were there previously and to sort of frame it as more of a wicked, complex problem, not this after-the-fact sort of emergency. So there's a real sense, I think, about, about um, merely being strong, in this case, after the fact, is not actually enough and, in fact, is in bad faith and not in keeping with people's expectations about leadership. Thank you. I'd, and... I think it'll be interesting as we look going forward at how people respond in the future as we're watching things unfold in both of our countries uh, with regard to perception of leadership. Mm-hmm. So, so, Lynn, let's get back to you. Um, if you want to say anything more about what inspired you to develop your project, it seems that you've covered that a bit, and then move into how was the data collected and who were the respondents. And I want to spend only a brief amount of time on the data and then really focus on the findings. Sure. Well, I would like to talk more about the inspiration because it aligns um, quite a bit with what Sam just explained about where the inspiration for their project came from. Um, in part, in large part, because attention to leadership um, beyond the political and business realms has taken more center stage uh, in the national discourse, contemporary discourse, but also globally. Um, we happen to fo- focus nationally in the United States. Leadership's being examined more closely and weighed in on more heavily by the public. Uh, we see this especially with the proliferation of social media, the charged nature of current social issues. Um, in all the institutions, in education and media, nonprofit, law enforcement, sport, community, religious sectors. Uh, so because follower perception is such an important aspect of the leadership process and willingness to follow is an increasingly important and powerful aspect, followers have more power now than they ever have. Mm-hmm. Um, we think it's really important to kind of systematically take the temperature of follower perceptions and then also track those trends over time to see how various aspects of context and follower demographics shift as things um, unfold over time. So that's really where our inspiration came from, just to understand all those dynamics coming into play. You know, it's interesting to be in an era where people can choose not to follow. They can in an era where sometimes followers have even more power with the, than leaders with being able to leverage social media 
And anything a leader does is just almost instantly in the public sphere at this point where that has never, you know, was never the case um, 20, even 30, 40 years ago. So followers are have so much more scrutiny on leaders and have even more power to have a voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, how is the data collected? And let's do like a two-minute summary. Sure. Um, we fielded a national survey. We fielded online. We had a 44-question survey that uh, my colleagues and I developed in consultation with various experts in the field of leadership studies. Uh, we surveyed it online to individuals 18 years of age or older, uh, residing in the 50 states, including District of Columbia. So we ended up with 1,849 usable responses. And the important thing to note is our samples nationally representative for a lot of important demographics like geographic region, sex and gender, race and ethnicity, age, household income, and political affiliation. And that's all based on current US census figures. Great, that's wonderful, thank you. And Sam, how about you? Anything more on inspiration and then moving into um, the survey methodology? Certainly. Thanks. Thanks, Maureen. Um, so similar to Lynn. It's, it's, um, I feel like Lynn has been reading my mail. It's, it's, it's uh, really remarkably resonant. <laughs> um, and that gives me great encouragement. Um, well, the inspiration really it's, it sort of follows from what I said earlier in the sense that you have this sense that, that no one really is responsible for or jointly responsible for the greater good, the wider public interest. And it's important. And we don't talk about this as much as we ought to. And it's time to start thinking about it. So we decided to do something about it. And we were very lucky to find some fellow travelers and some philanthropists, uh, Steve and Margaret Graham, who support us through their, their Graham Family Trust. And so, yeah, so we had the inspiration and we had the means. And, and so we made it happen last year. And so can you tell us in about two minutes how many organizations did you survey and a little bit more about the demographics? Yes, certainly. Well, Lynn, you've done a lot of the pre-work for me here. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Ours really is a community sample. So like Lynn was saying, followers are so important. And uh, and now we're looking to hear what the general community thinks and also recognizing, of course, that what they think is not always accurate. We have only so much insight, of course. Um, but so we, we focus here on what the community thinks. And what we do is we each of this survey on a quarterly basis. So March, June, September and December. And each time we take a nationally representative sample of uh, about a thousand people um, weighted according to state and uh, gender and age. And basically, um, we asked them 250 questions, but because that's fairly onerous, what we do is that we ask people only to answer a sort of proportion of those. So, for example, we measure 12 institutions across four sectors, but we ask people to basically respond to one institution in each sector. So that way we get to get an overall snapshot of sectors, but also some wider representation of different types of institutions. And so we basically just uh, draw this data together and present it via our, our data portal, which everyone can see. Beautiful. Thank you. So as we wrap up this segment, we uh, both Lynn and Sam have given us a background of the context in which they conducted the survey, the m- means by which they conducted it. And when we come back, 
we'll talk about the findings. One of the things I took away from this segment that I think is really important is the the rise in power of the follower that followers now get to get to or take choice in who they follow and how much they follow. So I would ask our listeners as we're on break to think about a leader you have been most likely to follow and a leader you've been least likely to follow and what characteristics do those leaders have and we'll come back with Lynn and Sam after a break and they'll give the results of their findings. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. We're talking to... Dr. Lynn Sholin and Dr. Sam Wilson about research findings on attitudes about leadership. And this is the segment where we get to find out some of the most intriguing findings. So Lynn, why don't you kick us off with your top six findings, both what they are and a little bit about what they mean to you. 
Sure. And I selected findings from our results that I thought would be the most relevant and interesting to this particular audience. Um, one of the most, one of the general findings is surprising or not surprising uh, in the United States, less than a third of the sample believe that leaders within the United States are leading effectively. So less than a third, and that's leadership in general, not a particular person or sector. Well, more than half of the participants, about 60%, believe that leaders within the U.S. are not as effective as leaders were 20 years ago. So taken together, these results are indicating um, skepticism about the current state of leadership effectiveness in the United States, although not necessarily widespread skepticism. So again, we aren't focusing on specific leaders or leadership, but we do get an overall perception that leader effectiveness is not so great. Um, and that it's declined over the last 20 years. That's telling. It is telling. And we're, you know, we're going to dig in here a little bit to sector, which gives us a little more insight if we take the data down a little bit in level. So about 50% of the sample believe that leaders in certain sectors are ineffective. And those sectors are education, religion, and the environment with 56%, even a little bit more, perceiving that leaders in national politics are ineffective. So we have this perception of leader effectiveness low across several really key institutions and sectors within the United States. Uh, again, it's not surprising, just given the, the division between the two political parties in the U.S., irrespective of which side you're on, it, it seems like because people aren't crossing the aisle much, there's a perception of divisiveness and inability to, to execute. Yeah, and those, I think that perception is just infiltrating various key institutions and sectors, even if it's originating potentially in a political or, or national um, politics sector. You know, I'd be curious, and again, I realize I divert us a little bit in some of my questions, but I wonder how much the national political behavior is infiltrating companies. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and we do ask about corporate sector as well. That didn't show up as strongly as those other sectors did. Mm. But when you have that larger overarching narrative that the general public is paying attention to, you need to ask the question of what's the trickle-down effect. Great. So one of the next... Uh, One of the next steps in in this project is for us to dig into the data looking at certain demographics so we can examine the results to those questions um, by political affiliation, by religious affiliation, by economic status and race and gender and age. And so some of our next steps are to get a little deeper into that data to figure out how perceptions might differ across identities. I will be interested to interview you next year and learn more about that. And... So let's jump into the next finding. Sure. This is also related to followers' perceptions about how leaders are doing and also gives us some insight to what they're looking for in leaders. And so especially the folks in your audience who are practitioners or leadership developers who help other people become more effective leaders, these are really useful findings for them. So Three-fourths of the sample, so about 74%, 
perceive that today's leaders in the United States are removed from the experiences of ordinary everyday people. Like they just don't understand what life is like for ordinary everyday people. And the twist on this is about the same amount, 75%, believe that the best leaders understand the experiences of ordinary everyday people. So what we're getting with this result is that the large majority of followers perceive that leaders in the U.S. are not meeting the followers' ideal of understanding the average person. Again, interesting, and I'll be curious to see as as you delve more into it. What do you have a sense for what's feeding that perception? We don't at this point because it's a really general look at the data but I think we're going to get a lot more insight into that when we start breaking it down by demographic got it Mm -hmm. so let's go to the next one then this finding is particularly interesting to me because as I mentioned earlier I study identity as related to leadership so we asked folks how comfortable they would be with leaders who differ than them in certain identity categories, such as gender, race, sexual orientation, and so on, and how willing they'd be to follow leaders who are different from them in those categories. So this is also important because we're having a lot of a lot more kind of re-emphasis on identity politics here in the United States. Mm-hmm. So about half of the respondents convey that they're comfortable with a leader who's different from them in the categories of um, gender, sex, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and income level, level, with a bit fewer saying they're comfortable with people, uh, leaders who have different religious beliefs than they do. And not quite as many, a little under 50%, say they're uncomfortable with a leader who differs from them on political views, which makes sense. Um, The views are confirmed when we look at the data for followers actually willing to follow leaders who differ from them, and we get the same emphasis that they're actually willing to follow about 50% um, or a little bit more someone who differs from them in these identities. Not quite so much in the political views. That's a bit more of a sticking point where only 34% would follow a leader who differs from them in political views. That seems dramatic to me. If a third of my followers will be less inclined to follow me because of my politics, it seems like we're now getting to a point where it's going to be tough to get the work done. And it could also depend on the context. If we're talking about getting work done in a context where political views are highly salient or relevant, that might be a real sticking point. Um, But there might be contexts where it doesn't matter as much. And so again, we've asked we've asked participants not to focus on national level politics, but we really don't know how much they are thinking of that just as a background mental model. Thank you. So, so then, what is next? I, I'm dying to dive into some of these, but <laughs> I know we are have our time boxed. Yeah. No, and I'd rather just get some of the information out there and then point people to where they can find out more toward the end. Right. Uh, This question, this next uh, result gets to what followers are looking at in terms of what they want leaders to be paying attention to and what they want them to be doing stylistically. And so the most striking emphasis is that respondents or followers put 
so much emphasis on the importance for leaders at the both the national and the local level, so even the community levels, to create an environment that supports diversity and to consider perspective of diverse people in decision making. That seemed to be widespread support for followers wanting to see that in action from leaders. And equally important uh, to the followers was that leaders at both the national and local level seek to take care of the natural environment. So we're seeing a lot of emphasis on not even really which sector you're leading in. Followers want leaders to pay attention to what's happening in our environment, uh, our physical environment. And that seems to connect directly with what Sam was talking about as well. It does, and I think it's really important for folks who are stepping into leadership roles or are already in leadership roles to acknowledge that followers are looking for leaders to go beyond just what it takes to get the job done and perhaps even just the focus of of the group or the organization. They're really looking for leaders who care about being inclusive, who care about gathering diverse perspectives and who care about taking care of the larger environment outside of that particular group or institution. Great, thank you. And and this is so important as leaders and future leaders are listening to this information to be thinking about if we influence, and that's what leadership is, Mm -hmm. it's important to understand what we do that gets in the way that we may not even be aware of and what we do that really accelerates our influence. Yes, absolutely. And also to take into account that followers they want to be seen as as the individuals that they are, and they I think they want their identities to be recognized, and they want to they want to hear perspectives from other people that may or may not differ than their own. There's a lot of evidence now that shows, you know, cognitive diversity, um, diversity in backgrounds and experiences that come from all the different identities we bring to the table adds value and creativity and innovation to our decisions and followers are looking to see that happen when they're working with leaders. Great. Thank you. So let's move to the next one then. Sure. This is the final one that I'll talk about because this is projecting us into the future. So we started with folks don't seem to be thinking that leadership is overly effective here in the United States at the moment, and perhaps even less effective than it was 20 years ago. So then we asked respondents to project into the future and think, well, what about our younger generations and how are you feeling about them leading into the future? So just over a third of the respondents believe that people in today's younger generations are motivated to to lead. So 37% think that younger generations are motivated to lead. Whereas about 35% believe the contrary. So there's a little bit of ambiguity. Um, The remaining third are not really sure enough to speculate. Folks aren't really sure what to think in terms of the younger generation's motivation to lead. So they represent a country divided about how motivated the younger generations are to lead the country into the future. And a really telling sign, and this is important specifically for leadership educators and leadership developers is that over half of the respondents, 57%, believe the younger generations are not being equipped to lead. And that's really telling for us. Um, We do leadership education at Christopher Newport University. Uh, We have a strong program in leadership studies, but accessibility to those types of program and that types of education aren't widespread 
And so it's kind of a call to action in terms of leadership education as well. I think that's a really important point for any of us who plan to live well beyond retirement. We have to turn over leadership to our next generations. And if the trends are accurate, many of us listening to this interview will be living to be 90 or well beyond. And so it's not just the millennials that will be leading. It's those well well younger than that now that we have to equip them because they will be running the country whether or not we want them to. So, uh, And the other is the perception of motivation, that each generation shows motivation differently. So it'll be curious to see just how this unfolds. It is. And Maureen, if I can tie in one more quick finding, because it's relevant, um, 46% of the folks that we surveyed believe it's too risky to be a leader in the current social climate in the United States. So we have almost half of folks saying, I'm not motivated to lead because it's just too risky. And if our younger generations grow up with that same mentality, we're going to be in trouble. So this is really a call to action for all of us to at least consider these findings and look at how we personally run our organizations. And hopefully the findings next year will will give us more detail to expand to a broader audience. So Sam, I know that your findings are gonna go into the next segment. Let's jump into yours at this point and we'll break in about uh, 10 minutes or less and then we'll come back to the next segment and continue with your thoughts. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, Maureen. So I thought it might be helpful to preface my remarks with just a, a few comments about uh, what we measure and how we measure, because that helps to explain our, some of our key findings. So what we did uh, in our work is that we measured perceptions as well as people's expectations. So that helps us understand the gap between how things seem to be and how things ought to be. And that's quite useful, as I'll come back to in a, in a moment. The second point I'd make is that our model of leadership for the greater good sort of breaks, this, um, breaks the concept into three main uh, sub-concepts. We look, at, we look at leadership for the greater good in terms of the types of value that is created. And here we look at social value or economic or uh, environmental value. We also look at the idea about how value is created. So how ethical are you in, in your conduct? How accountable are you and how transparent are you? And finally, we look at um, for whom do you create value? And here is the idea, is it for the self, for, for the other? And we have three types of indicators here. We have the idea that you should be responsive to the people you serve. You should be, you should be responsive to society. And uh, further to Lynn's point about diversity, um, you should be responsive uh, or to try and try to balance the needs of different groups in society. So with, with that said, I've got six findings that I'd like to share with you. And like uh, Lynn, they do tend to build on each other. Okay, so the first high-level finding is that on balance, and this is from, by the way, from six quarters of data and has really remained quite uh, static. On balance, the Australian community doesn't regard Australian institutions and organisations as showing leadership for the greater good. So this means that although there are a small uh, number of people who think that they do show leadership for the greater good, the vast majority don't. And actually what we find intriguingly is that our figures are very similar to Lynn's. Only about a third of the community think institutions across all sectors um, show leadership for the greater good. So there's a broad um, sort of similarity there, I think. 
Sam, can uh, we yeah. break here? Yes, please. Uh, thank you. We're going to get a break real quickly, and then I want to come in and be able to dive into your findings more deeply. That's great. So for our listeners, as we go on break, it would be interesting for you to reflect on what leaders, who are the leaders who you think actually lead for the greater good, and who are the leaders in your life who you think are leading mainly for notoriety or uh, personal benefit of, of various sorts. So this is Maureen, Sam, and Lynn, and we are talking about measures of leadership. We'll be right back. your work-life balance. In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. Connect with us and we'll connect with you. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on LinkedIn. Get the first word about happenings with the network, where our next live event will be, and what's up with our hosts. Look up Voice America on LinkedIn. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Hi, welcome back to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. We're talking about research findings on attitudes about leadership, and our guests are Dr. Lynn Sholin and Dr. Sam Wilson, and this interview is part of the International Leadership Association Conference Series. So, Sam, we ended with you giving only your first of six findings. Do you want to elaborate on that more, or do you want to go to your next one? I'll move to the next one. So, um, so the overall finding that there's that most Australians 
think that uh, our organizations don't share leadership for the greater good is interesting. Um, it's quite unhelpful as well. So we, we try and break this down to get a more granular sense of, well, where are the, who are the worst offenders, if you like, and who are the best performers? And so it may come as no surprise to, to you, but um, we found that the government sector, which we measure as the local government, state governments, and the federal government, um, are perceived as the worst performers. Most people think that they really don't show any leadership for the greater good. And our figures are very similar to, to Lynn's, actually. So whereas a quarter of the population think that they do uh, overall show leadership for the good, uh, most people don't think they do. So in terms of the best performers, uh, we find that a linked institution, um, the, the public sector institutions like public schools, public hospitals, the justice sector, by which I mean the police and courts, etc., these are seen as showing, on balance, leadership for the greater good. And uh, we find these trends to be quite stable over time. So the public sector remains uh, is viewed positively over the last year and a half, and the government sector is uh, viewed as stubbornly bad, basically. Um, and but in terms of the finding for this, and this may be of interest to scholars of leadership, this sort of raises a bit of something of a paradox here in that the public sector and the government institutions are connected. One creates laws, the other one enacts them really, and yet they're seen remarkably different. So the paradox here is that whereas government is seen as self-serving, the institutions they govern are seen as serving the public. So there's a bit of a knotty little conundrum to try and unpack there. And another finding I'd like to share, just moving on from that, um, is that looking at some of the indicators or drivers of leadership for the greater good. And I want to focus here on our findings for, for government institutions. And this is where we might have some sympathy. Uh, because unlike businesses and not-for-profit uh, institutions and public sector organizations, people expect uh, political leaders to actually almost do the impossible. So we expect them to pursue social goals and environmental goals and economic goals. And we pursue, expect them to focus equally on these things and pursue them with equal vigor. But of course, as we know from research looking at um, social enterprises, for example, it's terribly hard to actually pursue these conflicting goals simultaneously. There are always trade-offs and tensions and paradoxes that are, must be encountered and, and dealt with. And it's not always easy to do so. So in that regard, I do have some sympathy uh, for, for these leaders who face a somewhat impossible task. Um, one thing I might say too, I want to pick up on a point that Lynn, Lynn mentioned and uh, about the environment. We find as well that, uh, that across all sectors, especially government, uh, people expect the government to focus, or leaders rather, more generally, to focus on creating economic uh, environmental value, sorry, uh, much more than they actually do. But here's where it starts to get quite intriguing. In terms of the government sector, I'll just focus on that. Uh, we we seem it looks like the government sector is performing very badly in terms of their focus on the environment, and yet, and this is a, this is a bit dispiriting, when we look at the the role of, of environmental concern in terms of being a driver for leadership for the greater good, it kind of drops out. So we find that people are concerned about the environment, but in terms of judging political leaders, they don't really get punished for it, at least not yet. Again, I'm curious, but I don't know that we have time to unpack that. 
that we say we care, but we don't act. And, and that seems to be consistent with our, in the U.S., not voting leaders out. Yes, we see similar things here as well. Um, often, often the issue seems to be framed about the economic, short-term economic cost, which seems to dominate the field in terms of one's judgments. Um, there's more to discuss there, but maybe that's for another day. The final point I want to share in the interest of time, Maureen, is, uh, is about the key drivers of leadership for the greater good. So the question here is, okay, so we see that the overall state of leadership seems to be bad. We expect much more than we actually are getting, um, but what can we do about it? So this is for those who might practice leadership. What can my institution do to increase the sense among the community that we serve the, the greater good? And I'll give you four findings that relate to each sector. So first of all, uh, we find that for, for the government sector, the major driver here is being seen to behave ethically and uh, followed closely by the need to be uh, accountable for your actions and misdeeds. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see very similar patterns actually for the business sector as well as for the not-for-profit sector as well. And the intriguing thing about this is that these are about how value is created. People are much more concerned about how you go about doing what you do. Uh, That seems to be the the most dominant prevailing uh, judgment about are you serving the public interest. But when we looked at the public sector organizations, we find that something slightly different. The concern here is is not the type of value you create or how you create value, but rather it's the question of for whom are you creating value. And so for public sector organizations, being seen to be responsive to the people you serve and being seen to care about the wider community and balancing needs of different groups in your community, these are the major drivers in that context. So we see here that there's no, there's no sort of simple story here. It does matter about the context you're in and the institution you're in and people's expectations about what you're supposed to do. But it's interesting to see how those differ. Yeah. What is, do you have any um, clear sense of why that is other than, of course, we expect something different from our government leaders? Well, I have a few ideas. I mean, uh, there's often talk about different types of institutional logics and that's, uh, and different goals that organizations perform. And of course, we have different expectations about what different types of institutions should do. And we see that reflected in our data. So, for example, we expect businesses to be more concerned with um, uh, economic goals uh, than, say, social goals or environmental goals by virtue of being businesses. But um, having said that, in terms of showing a leadership for the greater good, businesses get no credit for pursuing economic goals. That's just what they're supposed to do. You don't get credit for doing a job. But okay. consistent with notions of shared value, for example, when, when businesses actually strive to create social goals, um, uh, pursue social goals, and strive to create uh, environmental value, then they do get some credit. Okay. So let's move to your other findings. I'm just sensitive to time. Well, that's, I've actually, sorry, I should have flagged that was really the last sort of finding there. Um, so there are many more findings besides, and we can actually drill down according to demographics as well. We have a great little filter function on our website. But they're the high-level findings. So on balance, when we hold the mirror up to the community, we don't really like what we see, but there is hope. 
So what is the hope? The hope is that people seem to have a sense of, it's difficult to actually define leadership for the greater good. It's such a slippery, strange, complex concept. But it's pretty clear that people have a very clear idea about the types of value that we need to create. And the idea that really we can't just pursue single-mindedly economic value at the expense of social and environmental. We have to find a way of pursuing these, these goals simultaneously. And you'll get credit for it if you actually manage that. We also see people concerned about not just value creation, but also questions of distribution and fairness. So we see that you have to be seen to show concern for the wider community. Um, and you have to be responsive to people. And if you, if you trip up, you have to be accountable. None of this is really news in, in some respects, but it makes it very clear about there are nine things you need to do. And within each, within each sector, there are two or three things you should do first. So that's helpful. And so if I were to go look at your website, I would see those nine things. And by sector, I would see the top, top areas. That's right. So our, all these, one of the things that we were at pains to do, Maureen, is to make sure that these findings aren't locked behind paywalls. Um, so what we've done is created this, this website, the Australian Leadership Index.org. And that presents all of our findings. So we're completely transparent. Every time we have our findings, uh, they come through, we load them up. And we've created this interactive data portal where people can explore the findings from the high-level work to the very granular detail. And they can also create their own charts to explore the data for themselves. So we're mindful that people have their own questions. And so we've created created a tool that enables people to ask their own questions and answer them. And we think that's quite unique. And that's one of the things both you and Lynn have done is created portals so that this information is shared. And I I can't overstate the value of that. When we think our leaders aren't getting the job done, it's not helpful to say leaders aren't getting the job done, but we're not going to tell you what needs to get done. Exactly, yeah. So we have a few minutes left. Sam, can you take a couple of minutes and then Lynn do the same? Um, to tell us how to get your access to your information. Yes, certainly, Maureen. I'd be very happy to. So people can visit australianleadershipindex.org and there they'll find some general information about the, 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 the surveys, uh, a bunch of articles we've written that we, we share via a Creative Commons license, and they'll see four main pages that break the data down in terms of the high-level findings down to the findings for each institution. They'll also find something called a chart builder on the australianleadershipindex.org website that enables them to say, what, am I, what do I want to know about? It could be accountability or ethics, for example, and in what sector, and they can then filter down. So, for example, the concern might be, what do people who lean left think as opposed to leaning right? People can ask mm-hmm. and answer all those questions and more. And, and in each area, you have recommendations for how leaders might improve. Because, again, it sounds like uh, both you and Lynn have uh, demonstrated that people are dissatisfied with the current leadership behavior. Yeah, that's the next job. So all the information is there on, uh, on the data portal. But we're in the process of writing our first annual report to provide a, 
a plain language account of what we found and what we suggest. So that's that'll be coming out in the next couple of months. Brilliant. So I have to have the two of you on in a nine months or so to give us an update. Sounds great. Lynn, can you tell our listeners how they would get access to your findings? Because again, brilliant data. And I know you also continue to share information. Certainly, Maureen. And and we also, like Sam um, explained, we think it's really important to have the data accessible to folks who are interested in leadership from a variety of different angles, um, whether educators, leadership developers, practitioners, and leadership scholars. Um, we'd like to have the data available for people to make sense of and for scholars to build upon, um, especially from an interdisciplinary approach. We know leadership incorporates a lot of different perspectives, so we want it available to build upon as well as to utilize in practice. Um, we do have a website. It doesn't sound as sophisticated as what Sam and his <laughs> colleagues have going on there, um, but we might reach that at some point. We're a little new in the process. Um, the Our project website is cnu.edu forward slash LAS forward slash the LAS standing for Leadership Attitude Survey. And what folks will find there is the first round of data we collected in 2019 and also some narrative making sense of what those data points are saying. What we will have rolling out hopefully month by month is that data broken down by demographics so we can see how to make sense of the general data, looking more specifically into all the demographic categories that, we do, that we've included in the survey. Um, people can also contact the researchers, myself and my colleagues, Elizabeth Gannion and Kat Callahan. We have an email account at ldsp-survey at cnu.edu. And at that leadership Uh, or at that email, we're looking for feedback, questions, collaborations, uh, requests to utilize the data, anything that folks might want to get in contact with us about. One of the things I love among many others is that both of you are uh, collaborating across the broader community to build on the information and, and continue to share it. So for our listeners, I hope that you have heard something that you are able to put into action. For our young leaders, please lead. Uh, You are important to our future, and we're all counting on you, uh, even if you think it's not a good idea. Um, For our listeners, thank you for joining us. Please do connect with both Sam and Lynn. Send me information at info at innovateleader.com or connect with me on LinkedIn or Facebook. Thank you for joining us, and we trust that you have found great value in this and will continue to listen. And thank you to the International Leadership Association for hosting this interview series. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future with Maureen Metcalf, next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.